Well, good morning and happy new year and may 2017 be a remarkable year for you with your families, your friends, uh, your job, your health, your ministries, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, may this year be a remarkable year for you. And more importantly, may it be a remarkable year in terms of what takes place inside you in your heart, in your love relationship with God, in your experience with Jesus, in your communion with him, your walk with him. I love the stories of our United States presidents. And one of my favorite stories is really kind of a lesser known story about our seventh president, Andrew Jackson. When Andrew Jackson, or I should say it this way, two weeks before he was born, his father died. When he was 13, Andrew and his older brother Robert were messengers for the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War, and they both got captured by the British. Uh, they were abused, they were mistreated, but then they were both released because they came down with smallpox. Andrew recovered, Robert didn't, and he died. A week after Andrew's brother Robert died, his mother suddenly died. And a year before that, Andrew's only other sibling, I believe a, a sister, also died. So when Andrew Jackson was 14, he was all alone in the world. He was an orphan. Yet he would become one of uh, America's most colorful and most beloved presidents. Even though right before he took office, just days before he took office, his wife died. And the entire time he was a president, he quietly battled tuberculosis. Remarkable pain, remarkable man. In the book of Genesis, we meet what I think is an even more remarkable man. His name is Joseph, who very much like Andrew Jackson, had to overcome enormous personal tragedy and loss. Yet overcome he did, and he rose and ultimately found himself as the number two man in the incredible potent empire of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. But what is a, a, amazing about Joseph is that he was very different, very different than Andrew Jackson. Because Joseph wasn't just a, a mere political leader. He was a thoroughly and publicly godly man. And what went on in his life on the inside now, in his heart, in terms of his vision of God, his conviction and confidence in God was just amazing. And as a result, Joseph shined like a star in the dark universe of the ancient Near East, the dark universe of Egypt. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at three different episodes in Joseph's life, draw some conclusions. So let's begin in Genesis chapter 39. 
When we come to Genesis 39, it's 1900 B.C. Joseph is 17 or 18. Or no, he's probably 18 or 19. He's just a, a teenager. In chapter 37, we know he was 17. And yet, uh, Joseph has gone through horrible experiences already in his life. If you know the story, you know he was betrayed by all 11 of his brothers. Not one stood for him. All 11. And they sold him into slavery. Now, don't let that pass by too quickly. That is an extraordinary hate crime within a family that took place in a culture where family was everything. All 11 betrayed and sold him. So with that as a background, let's pick it up in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him, purchased him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his his Egyptian master. Now verse 6. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, like me. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Now lots of people begin a new year like this new year with all sorts of resolve. A resolution here, a resolution there, spiritual, or um, a lot of different resolutions. And a lot of people begin the year with spiritual resolve, spiritual resolutions. You know, before the Lord we want to see this, or you know, I'm going to be about this. But then life happens, and hardships come, Uh, disappointments, uh, conflicts, and bewildering changes that are beyond our control in terms of the people around us and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so uh, along the way, we become disillusioned, and our our resolutions rather go away. And the reality is, if the hardships are serious enough, man, we become frustrated, we we become angry, and we sometimes even become angry with God. Now, to be angry is okay. Injustice, evil, sin, hate should make you angry. But anger directed toward God is a whole different matter. Now, while God is big enough to handle our anger... 
We are never justified for being angry at God because God's ways are always perfect. Everything God does, everything God does is always good. So if most of us were Joseph here, in light of what he had been through, we would be, we would still, um, uh, those hardships would still sting. We'd probably be uh, disappointed uh, with God, if not angry at God. And I say this because if any teenager had the so-called right to be angry at God, to feel sorry for himself, if any teenager had the um, so-called right to rebel against God, I mean, look at the hand God dealt me. And so to give in to some sexual pleasure in order to either get back at God or, or just to make all the pain go away, it would be Joseph. But look at the first three words in verse 8. But he refused. Now that's remarkable at any age, but it's especially remarkable at Joseph's age. A teenager. A common definition of virtue, by the way, is the willingness to delay gratification. It's the willingness to, to say no, to refuse as Joseph uh, refused. That's especially important in sexual temptation. Uh, it's saying, you know, this isn't right. I will, I will wait for what is right. But look at the last sentence of verse 9. Look at what Joseph says. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? In other words, what emerges here is a more biblical definition of virtue. You see, biblical virtue isn't just the willingness to delay gratification. It's the unwillingness to violate the holiness of God. It's not just a horizontal thing. It's a vertical thing. I will not violate the holiness of God. Now, when Joseph says this, in light of this uh, uh, stressful, extreme temptation he was facing... What we discover, according to verse 9, is that this wasn't merely a head thing. It was a head thing, but by that I mean it was. his belief in the holiness of God wasn't a box he checked when he was eight years old. It, it, it wasn't theoretical merely. It wasn't an abstraction. Uh, his conviction about the holiness of God, his vision about the holiness of God was something that dominated his head, dominated his heart, dominated his whole life. So in the face of extreme temptation, he says no. You see, Joseph's mind, according to verse 9 again, was protected by two thoughts. The sinfulness of sin, he calls it wicked, and the holiness of God. And only because Joseph saw sin as wicked and God as holy was he able to see the evilness in this alluring and attractive temptation from Potiphar's wife. And because of that, he immediately and continually squashed or put to death any evil desires that would rise up inside him that would say, you know, it's no big deal. Let's go ahead and have some fun. Man, he pushed him down. 
because his heart and mind was dominated by this vision of the sinfulness of sin and the holiness of God. Now notice what we're learning about the human mind here. The human mind is the gatekeeper of your desires. Your desires. God has given you your mind as a first defense against temptation. And that requires we see sin as always sinful, always wicked, and God is always holy. And, and we don't forget about that. We don't lose sight of that. And what that means, what's underneath all of that, is that you and I have spent months and years drilling God's truth into the recesses of our life. We've memorized his word. We uh, read his word, we think about his word, we sit under his word, we're in groups where his word is taught and we can share with one another and hold one another accountable to his word. Um, and when we do that, when we drive the word deep into our soul and our heart and, uh, and our mind, you know what happens? Your mind keeps your desires for, from reaching for that temptation, and your mind keeps your will from choosing it. And here in verse 9, don't miss this, we have this incredible statement of what's going on in Joseph's mind, but I want you to understand this is not a superficial thing. So overcoming temptation, overcoming sexual temptation isn't just something you do, it's something you believe, something you've spent years drilling into your soul. It's a vision of God thing where you say, my God is the infinite holy king of kings and I am not going to throw this in his face, whether it's a little thing or a big thing like Joseph is facing. Your vision of God will be the most important thing about you in 2017. And when you see God is holy, sin is evil, you will be pure. And you students, men and women, you, you kids, this is a daily battle we will fight each and every day of our lives as Christians. Now let's go on. That's the first episode. Turn two pages ahead to chapter 41. In the first seven verses here, Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, has two dreams uh, about two different, very different sets of things. In the, in the first dream, he, has, uh, he dreams about two different types of cows. In the second dream... Uh, two different types of grain. And in both uh, dreams, one set is healthy and one set is sick. Then beginning in verse 8 in the next two paragraphs, Pharaoh is told that, hey, there's this guy in prison named Joseph. Now Joseph has been in prison for 10 years for crimes he did not commit. Can you imagine? And anyways, if Pharaoh is told, hey, there's this guy, his name is Joseph, and he has a supernatural ability to interpret dreams. And let's look at how this plays out. Verse 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I had, 
I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, we all know that prisons are never pretty places. But 4,000 years ago, and the word in our passage is dungeon. 4,000 years ago, where Joseph had been confined for 10 years, was a rat hole of an existence. It's a dungeon. And yet suddenly, in a surprising turn of events, uh, Joseph, who's here a nobody and a foreigner to boot, is released from prison and stands before, before the most dominant, the most potent human figure in the ancient Near East, Pharaoh himself. Now, almost all of us would be thinking, if we were Joseph, okay, okay, one of the things we would be thinking, okay, play, you know, be cool here. Be careful not to say anything that would upset Pharaoh. And Man, you know, if this goes well, maybe I'll never spend another day in prison. But not Joseph. Look at verse 16, the next verse. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now here, what's significant is Joseph uses the Hebrew name for God, Elohim. And what Joseph is saying is my God, the God of the Jews, can certainly interpret Pharaoh's dream. Now interestingly, there is no sense of fear here. Joseph uh, is not implying any sense of fear here. Now, those of you that work in tough places, you, ha you have uh, tough surroundings in your job, maybe in your neighborhood, your family. Uh, you work with people who don't believe like you believe. Maybe your boss or bosses above you uh, don't share your faith in Christ, and, and it's tough. So what happens over the years is we tend to go silent. We, we tend to stop talking about God so we don't ruffle any feathers. But notice Joseph here. He takes a big, he takes a risk. Maybe, just maybe a big risk. Maybe he's risking his life and he talks about his God, the God of the Jews. Now clearly Joseph failed sensitivity training, right? He failed to be politically correct. Because he not only talks about his God, the God of the Jews, but he shares his experience with God. I know, Pharaoh, that I can't do it, uh, uh, but God can. In other words, another way to look at this is what J Joseph is doing is he's sharing his testimony. He's just gotten out of prison, but he's sharing his testimony with Pharaoh. Now why? Why is Joseph so bold? Why does he seem to be so fearless? Because Joseph not only believed in the holiness of God, he believed in the power of God. He says, God will do it. Joseph is staking his life on the power of God. Staking his life. Now you ask, well, where, where does this conviction about the power of God come from? Well, Joseph knew the stories. 
He knew that God appeared to his great-grandfather Abraham and promised Abraham he would be the father of many nations. He knew that that God became a man and along with two other angels uh, that became humans actually shared a meal with Abraham. He knew that his grandfather uh, Isaac was miraculously conceived when Abraham and Sarah were way beyond, way beyond childbearing years. He knew the stories about his father, Jacob. How God in his power incredibly, miraculously uh, multiplied uh, Jacob's flocks of sheep and goats. Uh, in a way nobody had ever seen. He knew the story of his dad, Jacob, who had wrestled with God in the flesh, and that's why dad always limped. Joseph not only knew the stories, though, he believed the stories of God's power. And they settled deep into his life, deep into his mind, deep into his heart. And so it didn't matter that he was alone. It didn't matter that he was abandoned. It didn't matter that he'd been in prison for 10 years. He lived every moment of his life in dependence upon the power of God. And here, Joseph is staking his life on that power. It's just crazy, incredible. Now, do you see the connection between belief and boldness conviction and courage heart and habits your vision of God will be will be the most important thing about you in 2017 and where you like Joseph see God as powerful you will be bold. You will take risk. As our second value here at Wheaton Bible Church says, man, wherever the Holy Spirit leads, you will follow. It's a power of God thing. It's a vision of God thing. Now let's go on to uh, another episode that, that illustrates the dominance of Joseph's vision of God. Turn to the end of Genesis, to chapter 50. Here Joseph is now the second man in all of Egypt. Joseph now has the world at his fingertips. Uh, the pain is in the rearview mirror. Joseph is a politician. Joseph is a layman uh, who, because of his godliness, is being extraordinarily used by God. As a matter of fact, some of the most Amazing people in any generation, some of the most amazing people throughout history are lay people who know God and who lovingly and publicly live for God. They understand that everyone, starting with themselves, who knows God is called into all-the-time ministry. And that's how they live their lives. And here in Genesis 50, Joseph, Joseph is in the middle of communicating with his brothers that betrayed him. And when we get to this last chapter in Genesis, Joseph is reflecting on the pain. 
He's reflecting on the betrayal. And look what he says in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Uh, Joseph believed in the holiness of God and it made him pure. He believed in the power of God and it enabled him to be bold, to take risks. Here we discover he believed in the sovereignty in God and what did it do? It made him forgiving, it made him merciful, it made him compassionate. It caused him to be a man who always extended grace. I mean, if you look at verse 21, he says, I will provide for you the 11 that betrayed him and your children. Who talks like that after a betrayal? Why? What was going on? Well, back up to verse 20. And here we see the theology. Here we see the thoughts that dominated Joseph's heart and mind. Uh, Joseph says to his brothers, uh, yeah, you meant this for, you intended this for evil, for harm, but God, God intended it for good. And what Joseph is saying is God always, God always works all things together for good. Uh, Joseph is saying, I know that God sees all things, that God ordains all things, that God uh, superintends all things. In other words, this statement is an Old Testament version of Romans 8.28. And we know that God works all things together for good. Jesus illustrates this in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29, uh, when Jesus says, not a sparrow, not a single sparrow falls to the ground outside God's care. And this is Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavenlies, and his sovereignty rules over all rules over all things, all things. Joseph is saying to his brothers, God is good all the time. And this vision of God's good sovereignty, his benevolent, loving sovereignty, enabled Joseph to overcome the most turbulent waters in life and betray the very, and, and forgive rather, the very people that betrayed him. To extend them grace. Grace to the people that hurt him the most. You see, your vision of God, now I'll say it differently, isn't just the most important thing about you in 2017. It's the only thing that will heal you and make you whole. And that's what Joseph's vision of the sovereignty of God is doing. It's healing him. It's helping him work past the bitterness. He's becoming whole. Now, years ago I would have stopped here, but I'm not going to. Because I do not want you to miss something. I do not want you to understand. God has not given us uh, these Old Testament stories or any Old Testament stories just to say, now it's up to you. Go be like Joseph. Now, yes, of course, 
We want to learn from these godly stories of, of Joseph, this godly man. And yes, of course, we want to be like Joseph. But there's something else going on here. And that is we want to see how these stories, how the Joseph story points to our Savior, points to Jesus. Twice in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 24 and John chapter 5, Jesus makes a crazy statement. He says, all the Old Testament points to me. In the Old Testament, you find about me. In other words, Jesus is saying both the Old Testament and the New Testament is one story, it's not two stories, and Jesus is the center of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. Not Joseph, not Joshua, not Jeremiah. So when we come to a story like this, what Jesus is saying in light of Luke 24 and John chapter 5, is yes, learn from Joseph, but understand that ultimately this story isn't about what you must do, it's about how Joseph points to me. And what I will do from the standpoint of Joseph's life, from our standpoint, after the cross of Jesus Christ, it's about what Jesus has already done. So for example, let me illustrate this. Take Joseph's purity in the face of this overwhelming temptation. Doesn't that purity point to the infinitely greater perfect purity of Jesus Christ? who from the moment of his great temptation with Satan in the wilderness all the way to his death on the cross was perfectly obedient, never sinned, never compromised with evil? Why? Why did Jesus live a perfectly pure life? So that in his perfect obedience, he might win for us a righteousness because we are by nature unrighteous and disobedient so that when we believe in Jesus, we claim Jesus as Savior Lord, we receive Jesus, he takes away our sin and he gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Let's look at it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So notice this. this is, Paul is claiming Jesus was perfect, Jesus was spotless, Jesus never sinned. So that in his death, when we believe, we might receive the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ has earned. So when we come to the Joseph story and we see Joseph's obedience... We see Jesus' greater obedience. And when we think, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life for me? And he died on the cross to take my sin away and to give me his righteousness? And he gives me this righteousness that I can't earn, that I don't deserve? Then that changes our hearts and we want to be pure. But it's not in seeing G Joseph, it's in seeing Jesus. Uh, let's go on. Joseph's boldness. 
pictures the, greatest, the greater boldness of Jesus Christ, who willingly left the splendor of heaven. Talk about a bold move. And boldly suffered, was rejected, tortured, and put to death on the cross for our sins. The ultimate act of boldness. I mean, talk about confidence in God, talking about the following the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit leads, and the intensity of Jesus, what Jesus experienced on the cross as he died on the cross in our place for our sin, was so great, so um, unimaginably horrific, that even thinking about the cross to come while Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane caused the blood vessels near the surface of his skin to burst, and he sweat drops of blood. Now when that stirs your heart, that Joseph's enormous suffering points to the even greater suffering of Jesus, and no, and yes, Joseph was abandoned and imprisoned. And yes, Joseph experienced remarkable pain. But no one was abandoned like Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one experienced the agony of Jesus. And when that stirs your heart, then, then how can you not willingly suffer? How can you not live publicly? boldly and take risks. And then finally, what we see is that Jesus or, or Joseph points to the, the true and, and better Messiah who sits at the right hand of the king and betrays all those who forgive him and uses his power to protect and to save all who believe in him. All who believe in him. And so my point in all of this is that Joseph is useful, but Jesus is beautiful. And the only way we get to purity, we get to boldness, we get to lives uh, marked by this kind of forgiveness and this kind of grace is not by trying harder, but by clinging to Jesus and continually pressing down into our lives the wonder of the gospel of grace. Your vision of Jesus Christ will be, will be the most important thing about you in 2013. And when you eat with joy the food of the king, you will stop looking for food elsewhere. Let's pray. Father, these are amazing stories about an amazing man. And yet, uh, you have given us Joseph that we might see Jesus because it's in Jesus that we find healing, we find hope. And so, Father, here we are on the verge of a brand new year with all its potential. And we ask that you 
would so drill into our lives this beauty and this wonder of Jesus and his love and his grace that we will resist sin. We will hate it as Joseph hated it. And we will be bold. We will live boldly and publicly. And we will be gracious. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's fix our eyes. Let's say of that which we believe.